Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in D.C., and I am your host, Julie Kurtz. I am stepping in for Kiko Bourne, who is on maternity leave through the end of 2019. She's celebrating with her newly expanded family, so a little shout out of congratulations to Kiko and family. Lunch Agenda, especially for our new listeners, is a podcast that schools you on the undercovered, underrepresented parts of the food system that we all need to know a little bit more about. Lunch Agenda has featured series about food access, food investment, food distribution, and how to do food education. You can find all the interviews on your favorite podcast app or at lunchagenda.simplecast.com. I will be posting updates on Twitter at Soil Soul Food. That's at Soil Soul Food. And Kiko continues to promote Lunch Agenda on her behind the scenes and behind the scenes info and episode picks at kikofoodnews.com or at kikobuff on Instagram. As your guest host during the next nine weeks, I am thrilled. Uh, to be hosting, uh, stepping into a lunch agenda series called Eating the Green New Deal. In February of this past year, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Edward Markey unveiled the Green New Deal, a resolution with now nearly 100 co-sponsors. The proposed resolution calls for a reorientation to a green economy, Transitioning away from the fossil fuel industry in order to cut greenhouse gas emissions 40 to 60 percent by 2030 and bring us to net zero emissions by 2050. What's more, the Green New Deal resolution calls upon us to do this equitably through inclusive democratic dialogue with vulnerable communities that have historically faced systemic oppression and a fair and just transition that supports high quality jobs jobs for those who might otherwise be displaced or left behind as we transition away from fossil fuel dependency. The Green New Deal resolution fell onto lunch agenda's plate because the resolution highlights the special role of food and agriculture in a newly newly imagined greener and more equitable society. Agriculture has many roles to play, from reducing greenhouse gas emitted during food production capitalizing on agriculture's potential to mitigate pollution and store carbon in the soil, um, to ensuring healthy food access for all, and facilitating universal access to clean air, water, and the natural world. So, during the next nine weeks here on Lunch Agenda, we will speak from, with guests from across the food system, including the policymakers that help shape our food system, uh, to consider how the Green New Deal could affect food and agriculture and how it would touch the unique, very unique roles throughout our food system. We will hear from uh, both experienced and new farmers, soil scientists, advocacy leaders within the food industry, food business, 
and the legislative leaders who are helping bring dialogue about food and agriculture's role in preserving our planet and communities to the center of the policy table. This week, to launch the Eating the Green New Deal series, we are incredibly fortunate to have Ferd Hefner with us to help get an overview of the Green New Deal resolution and especially how it relates to the history of sustainable agriculture policy in this country. When we come back, we will get Ferd on the line and we will take a quick break right now. Again, this is Julie Kurtz with Lunch Agenda. You are listening to Full Service Radio. This is a Lunch Agenda. I'm your host, Julie Kurtz. Uh, we have Ferd Hefner with us, who is the founding, who is a founding staff member and the Senior Strategic Advisor for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, or NSAC, as it is known here in D.C. around the Hill, and as you will undoubtedly hear us refer to it throughout this podcast. Uh, Ferd has been a leader in the sustainable agriculture community for over four decades. He uh, leading NSAC's federal policy work for much of that time. Um, the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, NSAC, is a coalition of over 130 grassroots farm, food, conservation, and rural organizations from all regions of the country that together advocate for policies supporting the economic, social, and environmental sustainability of agriculture, natural resources, and rural communities. And I will let Schwerd share briefly more about NSAC's policy areas. Prior to his work with NSAC, Ferd worked for the Interreligious Task Force on U.S. food policy. He has consulted with many NGOs and served on numerous USDA advisory communities. USDA, that's the United States Department of Agriculture. In 2018, Ferd received the James Beard Foundation Leadership Award and in 2017, the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Hero Award. And when you're done listening here, Ferd is featured on the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive at the University of Minnesota. So I look forward to catching a little bit of that. Ferd, we are so delighted to have you here on Lunch Agenda. Thanks, Julie. It's great to be with you. So Ferd, one of the reasons I'm so glad that you are here helping us launch this Eating the Green New Deal series is that you have been watching and participating in the food and agriculture policy environment for a very long time. Um, and not just as a policy wonk. Uh, because of the nature of NSAC's work, you've maintained really strong connections with the grassroots or community organizations and farmers and ranchers across the country. So you personally have um, in, been engaged in sustainable agriculture policy work since the 70s and 80s, is that right? Correct. Uh, so to start out, I, I'd really like to give listeners a sense of the history of the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition and... Um, telling us a bit of how and why it was founded. Um, and could you help us understand NSAC's history, especially as it relates to the sustainable agriculture movement and its policy in this country? Sure, sure. So um, we got started in the late 1980s, um, January 1988 to be specific, 
Um, and it was really an outgrowth of the farm crisis uh, of the 1980s uh, across the entire country. Um, and farmers uh, that, you know, sort of your traditional mid-scale family farm was at that point in time really asking the question, do we get big um, or do we get out of agriculture or is there another path, a middle path where we can continue to operate um, as sort of that more traditional family farm unit um, but survive economically? And part of the answer to that question was yes, if we farm in new and different ways that cut our input costs and that uh, increase the value of the products that we're producing um, so that our economic situation is going to be better. And that was really, I, th I would say, the major rationale for coming together at the beginning, um, certainly with heavy overtones of how to farm in ways that are in concert with the environment and also in ways that support strong, healthy rural communities. Um, so that, that was really the beginning. It was primarily Midwest-focused at the beginning, though it had representation from around the country. Most of the original member organizations were from the Midwest. Um, we started with a couple of dozen groups, and we've obviously increased steadily over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, we operate in D.C. a little bit like a general farm organization would, um, with the big difference in that we're comprised of individual organizations, not chapters of mm. NSAC. There's no such thing as a chapter mm. of NSAC. There are individual organizations, each with their own set of priorities and um, their own policy statements. But the, 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 I think the big thing that uh, has allowed us to survive and thrive is that Grassroots organizations, by and large, do not have representation in Washington. Mm. Um, some of the biggest ones maybe are able to do that, but most cannot. And so by joining together, they're able to give their constituencies and their farmers a voice in the halls of Congress and at the Department of Agriculture and elsewhere in the government. And so that's a lot of what we do is trying to translate the ideas of, of what farmers are saying on the ground, what they need, and then trying to translate it, that into something that could, you know, be within the ballpark of what could be moved either legislatively or administratively. Um, and so I, I, I do, you, you hit upon this, but it, it really is that ground truth thing um, that I think gives us um, a kind of special voice in Washington. We're not, we're not here representing ourselves. We're here representing a lot of different organizations and their farmer constituents. Mm -hmm. And filling a gap for organizations that might otherwise not be able to send anyone to Washington exactly. to bring these ideas to the federal table. Um, could you tell, you mentioned the cost of inputs for farmers. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more, what, is, what does that mean and how a farmer is going to weigh what, what those inputs might be or how, how they could diversify or change what those input costs might be based on how they farm? Yeah, so, you know, there are big costs like land, <laughs> uh -huh. um, perhaps the biggest one, um, and certainly energy, yeah. and uh, you know, all, the, all the inputs uh, uh, around uh, chemical use. And so a lot of what sustainable ag practitioners have done is say, how can we rely more 
on on-farm resources? How can we uh, rely more on our own labor and management skills mm. and less on purchased inputs? I mean, obviously, you can't eliminate purchase inputs, but, sure. but um, trying to reduce those um, and trying to rely more on on-farm resources uh, is really a key strategy that allows uh, particularly mid-scale farms to survive in a very difficult farm economy. It's not magic. There's no magic trick to surviving uh, periods of low prices like we've been in recently. Sure. Um, but but that's a key that's a key element of it. And it obviously has big climate implications. Um, you know, eventually we need to transition to a non-fossil fuel-based uh, agriculture. Uh, the sooner the better. Yeah. And um, so getting those costs under control, figuring out how to produce energy, renewable energy on farm, um, and how to cut down on the the input use, not only the fuel that's going in the tractor, but all the um, all the uh, uh, fuel and other inputs that go into making the fertilizer and the chemicals that farmers rely on. Sure, sure. And so when you talk about a fossil fuel-based agriculture, um, obviously, so uh, just to kind of update our listeners, some of the, the big facts that we think about with agriculture um, and, and greenhouse gas emissions. Um, globally, about almost a quarter of our greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture, but that includes land use and land use change. Um, in the U.S., we're not doing as much land use change, right? We've, we've had roughly the same amount of agricultural land in the past hundred years. Right. Yeah. But, but those, the chemicals that go onto the farm, that, that is a that is a fossil fuel process, and so that's a pretty carbon-intensive process. Right, exactly. And in the, the U.S., the agriculture, just strictly agriculture, not food system, but agriculture contribution to, to uh, total greenhouse gases is lower than for the world as a whole. Yeah, so I believe it's, like, it's less than 10%. It's less than 10%. Yeah, so um, transportation, industry, business, or, or, or building yeah. efficiency, that's a, a much more significant yeah. contributor. And energy is obviously the, the super big one. Yeah. But within, just within agriculture, it's really land management, soil management that is, is the biggest one. There's obviously um, other... Uh, other factors related to livestock production that, that weigh in as well, but um, land management is by far the biggest one. Um, and so that really becomes the focus of a lot of the attention towards what the solutions might be. Okay. So before we get talking about the Green New Deal itself, um, I think it's important to remember that uh, the the creative policies, uh, agricultural policies with environmental environmental goals have been applied to agriculture for a very long time. So um, in other words, the Green New Deal is not, it's not coming out of a vacuum here. Um, so could you help us understand the history of how some of the goals of environmental conservation, and we talked some about the fossil fuel dependency, but also um, thinking about land management, thinking about protecting clean water and clean air, um, how have these goals of environmental conservation been part of U.S. food and agricultural policy over the past decades or hundred years? Yeah, <laughs> just a, a quick brief history on the well. That, that's a really the primary policy tools that we've been using. Yeah, that's a really interesting question because for so long, our at, at least in terms of natural resource policy related to agriculture at the federal level, the focus has been on soil erosion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that was that was the key focus in the 1930s when 
ag policy as we know it today really got started. And, um, and is it a true story that they opened the doors of Congress to let the dust blow in? <laughs> is that a true story? Well, there was there were dust storms that reached as far as the okay, East Coast. So so I yes. was wondering if that was a, they stretched that or that really no, happened. No, that really did happen. <laughs> you weren't there, right? That was before no, your time? Before still? my time. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and, and then in the 1970s and 80s, water issues started coming to the fore and to some extent wildlife issues. And the, the interesting thing, I think, from a sustainable agriculture perspective is that sustainable farmers, organic farmers, whatever else people want to call themselves in that, in that uh, bucket of types of farming, um, has always focused first and foremost on soil health or soil quality mm. and then that's been the, the central, you know, foundational thing. And then the water quality and the water conservation mm. and, and protecting soil against erosion all flow out of that. But that's not the way that policy has emerged. It, it started with soil erosion and then started adding water quality and wildlife considerations. And it's really only, it's less than a decade, probably really mostly in the last five years, where soil health or soil quality has really suddenly become a major focus of policy. So we're really in the infancy, even though for, you know, for sustainable ag producers, it it goes back, you know, more more than a generation. Um, But in the sort of conventional agricultural policy discussion, it feels like a brand new thing. So Mm. that that's that's um, intriguing from a historical perspective, but it's also very hopeful from a future perspective that these two <laughs> wings of agriculture suddenly are finding common ground. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to come back to this question of soil health and why it's such a, um, an emerging, exciting issue at, at this time. Um, I, I think it's really helpful to know some of where, where we're coming from. And I'm wondering, with that, can you help us understand a little bit more where, where are we going? What are some of the, the policies that are already in motion? Um, so that advocates of more sustainable uh, regenerative agriculture are, are trying to push and move through federal policy, through Congress. Um, are there sort of go-to next steps that we might take um, uh, to, to move us to a, a greener food and agriculture system? Yeah, so I think a couple of ways to answer that. One is that, you know, we, we have most of the tools in the toolbox to address the question. We have conservation programs of various kinds, we have agricultural research programs, we have credit and crop insurance programs. So that, you know, I'm, I'm sure somebody a decade from now will invent some brand new <laughs> tool that we haven't thought of. But basically, we have the tools in the toolbox. Are they oriented to the right goals? And, mm. um, are, and are we measuring whether they're achieving those goals? That's a completely different question. Hmm. Um, I'll just use the 2018 Farm Bill as an example. So Farm Bills, um, for those in the audience that aren't aware or don't follow them, they they happen in Congress about every five years, 2018 being the most recent. And soil health, I I haven't counted, but um, there's soil health references throughout the 2018 Farm Bill. Um, But that's really a first. And so you know, how those programs get implemented. And most of them are referring to existing ongoing programs, but sort of adding a soil health lens Mm. to those programs, you know, 
the, whether that means anything will depend very much on how the bill gets implemented, um, and that it, that's definitely still a very open question. And there are some things that are quite specific. There's conservation programs like the Conservation Stewardship Program, uh, which is a, a, a major program to uh, assist farmers in farming in environmentally beneficial ways. Mm -hmm. um, it now has soil health as a key uh, ingredient. Um, and so that I, means that the U.S. government will pay farmers to practice, have good soil health practices on their farm. Is correct, that right? That's right. Um, there's also, uh, in the 2018 bill, a pilot project specifically to do on-farm demonstration of soil health practices. I saw that, yeah. So, you know, I think as those things start rolling out and mm -hmm. get implemented, we'll have to um, pay very close attention. That's one thing that, that the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition does routinely is follow the minute details of Farm Bill implementation. <laughs> um, so we track it and we report on it and we try to hold the agencies accountable to, to the directives that Congress has, has given them. And in, in slightly more palatable language than the farm bill yes. does. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> if you want the content without the legalese, right. head to NSAC's website. Yeah, we try. It's, it's hard because there's a, there is a lot of jargon, but we try to make it understandable. And, and make it understandable to the legislators, too, I will point out. Yeah. Who don't, you know, there are people on the agriculture committee who don't necessarily come from agricultural backgrounds or even districts. Sure. Um, so there's there's a lot of learning that can be done, but you know, getting back to the big question, I think um, we we have a lot of different farm programs that um, aren't necessarily helping us get to a green mm -hmm. new deal. In fact, probably working against that interest. So the the big question moving forward, be, be, beyond, I mean, not, not to discount what the 2018 Farm Bill did on soil health, but the big question going forward is how do we change the big programs that are directing the way people farm today so that they start moving in the mm. direction of addressing climate change? And, and not to call them out, but to call them out. Are, are we talking then some of these subsidies like for crop insurance and, and for big commodities that don't require farmers to use good soil health practices in order to qualify for those subsidies is is that what you're thinking or right exactly and and you know we have we've evolved into a system that uh pays uh provides a a, a subsidy to f commodity production um without very much in the way of any um uh environmental thresholds sure. of receiving those payments. Yeah. We do have something that um, that goes back multiple farm bills back to the mid-1980s called conservation compliance, which uh, mm -hmm. uh, requires those who are participating in commodity programs to have a soil erosion plan uh -huh. um, and to protect wetlands. Uh, and... The, it, it's had its ups and downs right now. I would say it, it's more in the down phase okay. where, where enforcement is not what it should be. Okay. Um, but at least it's on the books. But it speaks nothing of soil health. It speaks mm. nothing of water quality. Um, we need to eventually get to a place where there's, at a minimum, certain requirements that everybody has to do in order to be part of the in, 
part of the commodity subsidy program. Gotcha. And even that sort of conservation compliance uh, feature of law only applies to commodity programs, not to the crop insurance subsidies, which are actually larger right. than the commodity uh, right. subsidies most years. So you're saying if, if we're going to be paying for these subsidies as American taxpayers, we should we should get more bang for our buck. We should get public goods out of them, environmental services, instead of just paying for for farmers' incomes or or even for agribusiness companies like crop insurance companies or or things that end up going up you know upstream to right right yeah you know I think a good first step would be to enlarge the conservation compliance system so that it's addressing all the relevant resource concerns and so that and it's addressing all the programs not just some of the programs but ultimately we really need to rethink the the entire reason why we support the uh, farm income Mm. and make it based on uh, addressing climate and addressing water quality and addressing the big environmental Mm. issues that need to be addressed I think I think there's a path to do that. It it sounds crazy right now. It's not something that gets debated in the halls of Congress. But um, I, I think as the climate crisis um, comes more and more to <laughs> uh, yeah. everybody's uh, consciousness, um, we need to be doing that, and sooner rather than later. Right. And and uh, the U.S. government has been paying farmers for a very long time, roughly 100 years, right? We, we've been offering subsidies. And, and when that started, we really were talking about poor farmers that needed some income support in, in cer- at certain times. And now that's not to say that there aren't many, many farmers still struggling. And, and a lot of those farmers, NSAC, is supporting small and mid-sized farmers. But the median farm income is now higher than the average U.S. income. So a lot of those subsidies are... They're not supporting maybe the farmers that need need it most, and and also we're not getting the environmental services that we could be getting from our tax dollars. Is that? Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's a little bit more nuanced than that. I mean, for for many years, farm programs were based not on not on payments to farmers, but on keeping the price of commodities higher and mm-hmm. having those prices reflected in consumer prices. That all changed in the 1970s. Um, and it, But the, the nice thing about the programs from the 70s through the 90s was they provided payments, but there was also some implementation of controlling supplies so that the payments did not get too large. Um, because the prices were being kept in a moderate position, that all changed in the late 1990s, and now we just have we just have payments. There's no particular reason, no particular rationale. Uh, it's no longer to control supply or keep prices higher. In fact, mm. one could argue that if anything, they probably keep prices lower. Um, and and so it, it's a it's we do it because. We've had them for a long time, and <laughs> Congress just, you know, tweaks it here and there and keeps right, moving right. forward. But at some point, you know, it's like the, um, does the emperor have any clothes? You know, like, why mm. are we doing this? And what is the public good that comes out of it? So sure. we need to get busy on realigning federal farm programs to having that public good. And then I think there's a sustainable path forward to mm. maintaining that um, so that uh, so that farmers can stay in business, 
I don't think that's going to be maintained very much longer if it's just a payment for the sake of supporting commodities. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, let's get into what is what is different about this time now. Um, and as you mentioned, this the the climate consciousness is very much on people's uh, uh, on on people's minds. Um, and it brings us to what this Green New Deal. Um, and we, and we hear this term Green New Deal now thrown thrown around a lot. Um, and I think it's easy to talk about it as, as though it were just a symbol, and instead of a, an actual resolution that has now been written. Um, so what I'd actually like to do is I want to read the, the text from this House resolution that actually relates to food and agriculture. Um, so uh, we can hear it straight from the source. And first, we can remember that the Green New Deal is as a sort of concept and idea. This isn't the first time it's ever this phrase has been used. Um, uh, so... So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Senator Edward Markey, the co-sponsors and the other co-sponsors of Bill, uh, they didn't invent the term necessarily, from what I understand, but they, they did put concrete language down on the page that is, that is now shaping what the Green New Deal stands for today. Am I, does that sound right? That's by your correct, mind? yeah. Okay. So uh, to start with, it's, it's only about 13 pages long, uh, and that's... 13 pages in congressional layout, which is most, it's like very good art that has a lot of white space. <laughs> so so uh, you could read it as a little bedtime story. Um, I'll spare the, the full 13 pages, uh, but um, I, I do want to read the text that relates to food and agriculture. So, and to conduct this momentous reading of House Resolution 109 of the 116th Congress, I'm going to ask for a little support from the studio, um, some pro appropriate audio to sort of set the scene. So, Alexia, do, do you think you could help us out? Great. So, okay, here we go. House Resolution 109 of the 116th Congress. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, Alexia, um, maybe I think that clip is maybe a little bit too... Queen announcing the law of the land. So can we maybe capture an essence of a, a resolution? Because it's it's not a law or or even a bill. We just we need something maybe a little bit more imaginative or ambiguous, kind of visionary sounding. Oh, there we go. Okay, here we go. So we're gonna jump right to say, page six of the resolution that calls for the ten-year national mobilization that will require the following goals and projects. Building resiliency against climate change-related disasters, such as extreme weather. Jumping to page eight. Working collaboratively with farmers and ranchers in the United States to remove pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from the agricultural sector as much is as technologically feasible, including by supporting family farming, by investing in sustainable farming and land use practices that increase soil health, there's your word, and by building a more sustainable food system that ensures universal access to healthy food. Skipping to the bottom of the page. Removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and reducing pollution by restoring natural ecosystems through proven low-tech solutions that increase carbon, soil carbon storage, such as land preservation and afforestation. Restoring and protecting threatened, endangered, and fragile, e fragile ecosystems through locally appropriate and science-based projects that enhance biodiversity and support climate resiliency. Skipping ahead to the end. 
providing all people of the United States with clean water, clean air, healthy and affordable food, and access to nature. Okay, so that's kind of it. That's, that's, that, that's it. Um, I admittedly, I, I skipped over some of the good parts of the resolution on um, themes of, of wealth and racial and gender disparities um, and creating a fair and just uh, transition, um, uh, ending systemic oppression and, and international trade measures and things that will, uh, that, to have environmental and labor protections with them, but that is more or less the text that captures food and agriculture. Is that right? So I'm, I'm wondering, if you, as you look back on your 40 years of policy work, do you think what I read more or less captures what you've been trying to do in a nutshell? Yes, to a, to a degree. I, you know, resolutions are tricky things. They're, they're very big picture. This one is super very big picture. <laughs> um, uh, and so, you know, they're... they're, they're um, they can be good organizing tools, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I guess where I find what what I, I, I find a couple of things about Green New Deal. One is, I think the linking of the climate and environmental issues to jobs and to equity is a really powerful thing, and applied to rural America and to the farming part of rural America, I think has a real benefit. Mm. Um, the the language probably needs to be modified somewhat to reach that constituency. And you don't think the music background really does the job? <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe we needed something a little more country, but <laughs> maybe, maybe so. <laughs> but it, it, you know, I, I think another thing is that um, it, it's become a symbol uh, mm. and a rallying cry, and I think. Um, you know, it's it's uh, impressive. I think that almost every uh, major Democratic candidate for the presidency has issued statements about agriculture and climate change. That w- was unimaginable yeah. <laughs> in the past. Yeah. Um, and you know, they're all a little bit different. They, but they, they sort of share a common theme of farmers being part of the solution. And I think that's a really important note to strike and something that's really helpful. But getting, getting those big picture statements, I mean, the, the presidential candidate statements are a little bit more specific than sure. the, the resolution. <laughs> but you know, getting to the next levels of specificity um, of actual policies that could actually move is you know, going to be the big trick. And yeah. um, you know, we'll have you know, at least, I think, at least two shots at it um, legislatively coming up. One will be the next farm bill, which is scheduled for 2023. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd say a reasonably reasonably decent chance that there might be comprehensive climate legislation either before that or simultaneously with it. Um, and those, those are opportunities that cannot be missed, um, you know, from a from if you care about the survival of the planet, those opportunities we really need to to maximize what comes out of those, um, and be yeah. and be ready for them. So I, in that context, I think the energy around the Green New Deal, if not the specifics or the lack of specifics, I should uh-huh, say, uh-huh. and the fact that major candidates are talking about it, um, you know, even squeezing it into 
you know, 20 seconds on <laughs> nationally televised <laughs> debates. Right. It's a real positive sign that this issue has, has reached a new level um, and that agriculture has a role. Uh, you know, if we had the ideal food and agricultural system, um, you know, from a climate perspective, it might be 20% of the solution. Um, so it's not everything, but it's a huge sure. part of it. And it's a part sure. that could be realized probably more quickly than some of the other mm. uh, uh, parts of the climate solution that might take a longer period of time. You know, because we basically know how to, how to farm in ways that, you know, would reduce greenhouse gas emissions and increase carbon sequestration by gotcha. significant amounts. It's not, it's not like in some other areas of the climate debate, it's, there's questions of technical know-how. Sure. This is less a question of technical know-how. It's more a question of getting our signals right so that people are empowered to do the things that need to be done in mm. the farm and food system to address the issue. So it's, it's not like we have to invent a whole lot of new things. Right, right. That's a, that's a great point to consider, that the, the, just the opportunities that are present now in a way that is, is not possible uh, now for energy um, and for transportation that, that um, will take a long time to, to roll out, and we are dependent on this sort of promise and hope of, of technological advances. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, well, you, you mentioned that... Um, uh, that this is uh, all the, the candidates bringing this, and we have another debate tonight. So hopefully we will hear more about um, about healthy soil and agricultures. But I, I agree with you that um, that I certainly in my lifetime I do not remember hearing presidential candidates talk about uh, what farmers can do to sequester carbon um, and how farmers can be a part of the climate solution. Um, that, that feels like very new language. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear over your, your decade, you know, four decade long career, uh, how have you ever heard political candidates uh, really lean into conservation in, in the way that they are um, this year? And so uh, is this the, the, the year of, of sexy soil that, that, <laughs> that uh, candidates are drawn in to, to really lean into the, the agricultural community and the potential, the sort of na- the, the, the options for nature to really help lead the way when we have to wait on some of these other technologies? Yeah, it does feel like an, an issue whose time has arrived. Uh-huh. I, um, one indicator of that is just how many states have now, just in recent years, the last few years, have passed soil health laws at the mm. state level. I think we're up to about half of the states either having passed and implemented uh, soil health programs or you know, seriously considering them. Hmm. Anytime that you get that many states doing something um, and they're all sort of all doing it at the yeah. same time, that's always going to you know, percolate up to to the national level and, and get people's attention. Um, the, the, the thing about those programs, and some of them are, sound really, really good, um, like um, they could really make a big difference, but they're funded at incredibly small levels. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, the case for a major federal investment um, sort of cries out, whether it's, you know, helping to fund the state programs in a, in a, uh, 
block grant or cost share kind of way uh -huh. or whether it's creating the federal analog that's bigger. Um, it just seems like now is the time to, to do that. And, you know, I think the trick for candidates is trying to figure out how to how to do that and how to say that in a way that resonates with rural voters and including but not limited to the farm vote. Sure. Um, and that's that's a tricky proposition. Yeah. It's, it's not um, straightforward. Even using the word climate or climate change is a tricky proposition. So it, it, it needs to be done in ways that really talk about farmers leading the way and, and helping to create the solutions. Um, and since they're heavily impacted by climate disruption, witness the floods and the droughts of the yeah. last few years, um, they have a very vested interest in doing something to help solve the problem. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, we are we're coming to the, the close of our time, and um, I'm, I'd like to borrow from what the host, Kiko Bourne, uh, traditionally asks of her guests for an action item. So this is a, um, I recognize an action item from a policy specialist may, may sound daunting, but Ferd, if you could help bring these topics to, to action item relevancy. So for our Lunch Agenda listeners, what is, what is one thing that you would like listeners to do in, in our day-to-day -to, -day to change the food system and the agriculture system for the better? Wow, good question. Um, <laughs> I'll cheat and give you two answers because the first one will be real quick. Okay. Um, you know, stay abreast of things coming from National Sustainable Ag Coalition or other advocacy groups that are in this space. There's a bunch of them. Um, uh, and, and really uh, be ready to respond when the opportunities for citizen advocacy come Wonderful. to the fore. And I think, I think that will be increasingly the case after the next election. Um, so... Um, Always, always be on the lookout for that. I guess from a more personal, uh, you know, eating standpoint, uh -huh. um, because I think it's the point at which the climate debate gets and climate debate relative to agriculture gets the murkiest. Uh, deals with livestock um, and poultry um, and dairy to some extent, and. Um, it, it, and it even had implications in the rollout of the Green New Deal re resolution. Oh, yes, that's right. Um, and uh, so my recommendation would be if, if people don't eat meat for personal reasons, philosophical, religious, uh, health, whatever, that's great. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, go for it. If, if the reason people are wondering whether they should stop eating meat is because of climate change, I would say don't believe everything you read. There, are, okay. there have been many pieces written that oversimplify this question. Sure. Um, I think without a doubt, the, you know, a sustainable diet into the future will require a more balanced uh, diet than the typical American diet. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, relative to the typical American diet, that means less meat. Um, but it is incredibly important for climate change activists who don't have philosophical objections to eating meat to be looking for sustainably raised, pastured-based mm. meat alternatives um, they are a key part of climate solutions, 
Um, we need to have our grasslands and our rangelands and our pasture lands managed in a way mm. that's sequestering carbon and providing habitat and uh, providing healthy animals um, that um, are nutritious source of food. So I would say, you know, it's the most confusing point, I think, yeah. because so many articles have been written either, you know, sort of black and white. It's either you should you should stop eating this to save the planet or um, no, 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 everything's fine. And everything is not fine, but you should not stop eating it if you think you're saving the planet. <laughs> I guess that's my summary statement. All right. All right. Well, thank you for giving us a little bit more uh, a window into some of the nuance that is behind um, the, the controversy uh, around meat. So uh, you mentioned NSAC's website, so I just want to make sure I've got this right, sustainableagriculture.net. That's correct. Sustainableagriculture.net. You can read up on um, a number of different policies and the work, the, the really vast policy work that, that NSAC does. And then their Twitter account is at sustainableag, that's ag, A-G, at sustainableag. Um, and, uh, up next, next week we have, uh, two farmers, one from the Northeast and one from Oklahoma, um, speaking about the Green New Deal, um, and why it is, uh, difficult for many farmers to, to take this on and, 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 and want to, um, use that language, um, but also talking about some of their own climate goals. Uh, we, then we've got some, a couple millennial farmers coming on, and uh, we'll also be hearing from a, a farmer researcher dual talking about soil health. So we've got advocacy, some other things coming after that. Um, but other than that, thank you so much for turning, tuning in to Lunch Agenda. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.